beginning in the prophet Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to start reading verse 6, but our, our passage today really is verse 7. The word says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now flip to the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of the helmet of and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would establish an eternal government of peace that he said would never cease to increase not just never end, but would never stop growing, never stop increasing. This government will be established and upheld with justice and righteousness forever accomplished by the power of God. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, tells us that God sent an angel to Joseph. At that time, he had been betrothed to Mary. And in a dream, God told him that Mary was carrying a child that had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the angel instructed Joseph that the son that Mary would bear would be called Jesus because, the angel said, he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Following this dream, the scripture records one of the most beautiful, simple acts of obedience. Joseph awakes. And in verse 24, it says, When he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The New Testament celebrates the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic promise. And one of the earliest books in the New Testament is the book of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 5, 
Paul is giving instructions for how Christians are to live in the context of a wicked and broken world. Specifically, Christians are to live in a posture of expectation for the immediate, imminent return of Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came first as a suffering servant, came to die for the sins of us. But he will return as a conquering king, completing, fulfilling, completely establishing the rule that began when he came the first time. Now, the connection between Isaiah 9, verse 7, and 1 Thessalonians 5, I think is one of timing and perspective. Isaiah is looking forward to the day that the Messiah would come. He says, For unto us a child is born, a son will be given. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, is rejoicing that Jesus the Messiah has indeed come and is looking forward to the day when he will return again. Isaiah is looking forward to the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom. Paul is rejoicing that the kingdom of God has begun and is looking forward to the day when the fullness of that kingdom will be known. The difference between the two is timing and perspective. And from these two passages, I want you to to be encouraged this morning in these three ways. I want to encourage you to have a perspective of hope. To see, even in the context of brokenness all around us, that you and I, those of you who know Jesus, must have, should have, ought to have a, a vision, a perspective of hope because of what God has done and what God is going to do. Secondly, I want to encourage you to to rest, to rejoice in the promise of salvation. Jesus has saved, he is saving, and he will save. And then lastly, I want you to be encouraged this morning to, be, to have the perseverance in the present. We, we persevere presently not because today is easy or even pleasant, but because of what God will do. I want you to be encouraged this morning. Let's begin with the perspective of hope both Isaiah and to the, to the Thessalonians, there is an encouragement there that they are to have hope in the present. In other words, hope right now because of the promises of God. Isaiah looked forward to the day that the king, God's kingdom would be established with the coming of Messiah. Paul calls Christians to live according to the kingdom of God that began the day Jesus was born. Both encourage believers to have hope in the present, even though the present has a lot about it that's not so encouraging. This is not a call to ignore the troubles or sufferings of the present. This is not an effort to turn a blind eye to the suffering of our day. The prophet Isaiah spoke very graphically about the discipline that God would would bring and the difficulties God's people would endure. But he also spoke of a day when everything would change with the advent, with the coming, with the arrival of God's promised Messiah. Paul was warning that even though some claim that there is no danger in rejecting Jesus, warning that even though some claim there's no danger in denying the holy wrath of God, in fact, Jesus is coming again in judgment to bring about the fullness of his kingdom and establish his rule completely. Both Isaiah and Paul are encouraging believers to have hope in the present. 
right now. Believers are called to live according to what will be, not what is. Believers are called to live in hope of what God will do and will accomplish. Now, for some of you this may be academic, but for some of you this is deep down intense heart issues. If you're grieving today, the Bible calls you to have hope, not because your present is easy or even pleasant, but because of what God will do. Behold, he's going to make all things new. If you're suffering today, maybe uh, uh, this year, in 2023, you got a a diagnosis that's not going away. A pill, a procedure will not fix it. You're going to live with it for the rest of your life, and you're coming to grips with the reality of it. Your present may not be pleasant. It may be filled with suffering, but the Bible calls you to have a perspective of hope because of what God will do. These bodies are mortal and perishable, but behold, he's going to give us glorified bodies that will no longer know death, no longer know suffering, and all the former things will have passed away. It's a perspective of hope in the present. In the flesh, many are tempted to look to the past with nostalgic longing, longing for the good old days, seeing the progress of time as a constant degradation of what was good from the past. But in the spirit, friends, look to the future in hope for what God will do. What God will do is better than anything we experienced in the past. He is coming again. He will fulfill and fully establish his kingdom. He will rule with justice and righteousness. Evil will be defeated. He will rule forever, and his children will dwell with him forever. Friends, that's better than anything of yesterday. We're to have hope in the present, and we are to actively work for what will be. In verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it begins with these two words, but since. Paul is talking about that that we're to live differently than the world around us since we are children of the day, since we are children of the light, since we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, we are to live differently than the world around us does. Paul's building on the argument that he's been making that Christians live in this world, not according to the world's wisdom, but according to the promises of God. Faith in the promises of God changes how Christians live in the present. Now, he began chapter 5 with with an acknowledgement that the world around us is saying, uh, uh, peace and safety, all's fine. Don't worry about eternity. Don't worry about the judgment of God. You're good. Just live the best life you can. Paul says Christians should be sober. Now that's more than just you shouldn't be drinking. It's a recognition that we should be alert and ready. The word that he uses there to be that we should be sober or or alert does indeed mean the sense of not being drunk. But but more than that, it means to to, to, rest, to have restraint and moderation, not giving yourself to uncontrolled excess so that you are clear-minded and ready for action. Now, just the, the practical sense there is that when someone is drunk, they're not ready for action. They've given themselves to immoderation. They, they've given themselves to excess, and therefore they're inhibited, they're limited in their mental ability, their physical ability. 
And if you expect action is going to be required of you at any moment, you won't dull your mind with such things. You won't, you won't dull your physical ability. No, you're, if you think action is required of you at any moment, you stay alert and ready. When someone is drunk, they're, they're not prepared for great responsibility or action. Friends, if you're a Christian, your future is secure. And your hope is promised by the power of God. And Paul says, live today according to the promises of God. That God's going to bring about glorified bodies. That he's going to draw the righteous unbefore himself. That we will live eternally in the presence of God. And that you and I presently are to be sober-minded for what will come from the, for the redeemed, salvation. For what will come for the lost, condemnation. And for the present opportunity to be saved. Be sober-minded. We're to live actively, presently, working for what will come. Now, I just want to press this to you just a minute. For those of you who know Jesus... Understanding for what will come changes how you live presently in at least two ways. Number one, every morning you wake up expecting Jesus to return. That changes how you live. If you expect Jesus to return today, you don't give yourself to foolish, worthless things. You, you stay active and busy for the Lord. But it also, secondly, it changes how you respond to your friends and neighbors. I've pastored now a little over 20 years, and I've had this experience more than once, and it rips my heart in two every time. I've had those experiences where someone, uh, I, I wasn't real confident in their salvation, and I planned to go meet with them about, their, about the gospel, and they died before I could get to them. It's an opportunity you don't get to have back. Friends, if you believe, as I believe, as the Bible declares that Jesus is going to come again, then you can't live with peace and safety on your lips. No, you have to live with, with sober-minded clarity that that friend of yours that you sit beside at work every week that doesn't know Jesus, at any moment, whether it be a Mack truck rolling them over, over them or the glory of the Lord returning, they could step into eternity under the wrath of God. That family member that you're going to enjoy Christmas morning with tomorrow, sweet and wonderful times, that doesn't know Jesus, you need to be sober-minded that if Jesus were to come back in the middle of your Christmas celebration, they would not step into eternity of salvation. They would step into eternity under wrath. And so under the sense of the, uh, of, of, uh, the perspective of hope, Hope is for those who are under the salvation of Jesus, and it changes how we live. We live presently according to that hope, and we actively work for what will be, understanding that today is the opportunity unto salvation, proclaiming it until Jesus comes back. Proclaim the truth of salvation with confidence and hope until the, Jesus, until the day Jesus comes again. Perspective of hope. Secondly, be encouraged by the promise of salvation. In verse 9 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, if you'll just turn your attention to it, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath. That's a good word. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
promise of salvation. Isaiah spoke about the Messiah would come to establish a government. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. When, when the Messiah Jesus came, the angel said to Joseph, his name is going to be Jesus. It's a family name. It's a God name. Joshua. It means God saved. And in fact, the angel said, because he will save his people from their sin. The Messiah came to save us from our sin. The work of salvation, the promise of salvation, is salvation from sin. Sometimes it's helpful to define what something is not in order to understand what it is. And Paul does this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Those saved by Jesus, he says, are not, this is the negative, are not destined for God's wrath. Well, the question that would have to be, who is then? The wrath of God is, listen to me, the wrath of God is a terrible thing and something that cannot be ignored. Now, the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus will be a day of judgment. And often Christians think about the day of the Lord and his judgment only singularly in positive or favorable terms. Now, there's a reason for that. Because the Bible says that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ, those who died believing in Jesus, will rise from their graves with their glorified bodies. And that Christians who are alive at his second coming will rise and meet Christ in the air. It's a glorious day. Oftentimes when I preach funerals and I'm with families standing around the open grave committing the, the mortal remains of the, of the beloved one who has died to the ground, I make the comment that I said, today, this day, is, this place is a, a sad and mournful place, but when Jesus returns, oh, I want to be in the graveyard that day. When the dead in Christ, when the graves give up their, their, their contents, the dead in Christ rise and, and those of us who remain meet him in there, it's going to be a glorious place on that day. And because of that great hope of salvation, many of us, most of us who know Jesus, think about the second coming of Jesus in positive, favorable terms. But we should recognize that the judgment of God will be a terrible moment for many. God's judgment will be unexpected. God's judgment will be perfect. In other words, no sin will be missed or overlooked. God's judgment will be perfect in that his wrath will be holy and just and his wrath will be unrelenting and eternal. For those who do not know the Lord, for those who are not covered by the redeeming blood of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus is not a glorious happy day. It is a terrible day unlike any other. The only thing that can rescue wicked sinners from the wrath of God is the blood of Jesus. If you've been saved through faith in Jesus, you have the promise of salvation. Not according to what you've done. Not according to your effort, but through Jesus who came that sinners might be saved from the wrath of God. That's why Jesus came. 
The birth of Jesus wasn't to come just to empathize and sympathize. The birth of Jesus was that Messiah would come, Jesus would come to save us from our sins. How does he save us from our sins? He saved us by being the the sacrifice for our sins that you and I may no longer have the, the future destination of wrath, but we would have the future of the hope of God in the presence of God. Salvation from sin. Friends, we're reminded that that salvation is through grace alone. Look at the first half of verse 10. It says, who died for us so that whether we awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul reminds us. Now, it's interesting. He's writing to Christians. Paul's writing to people who who know the gospel, who know why Jesus came who know what Jesus did. But he reminds them, he says in verse 9, you're, you're, you're not, uh, uh, let's be sober-minded, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus. And then he reminds them of what they already know, but sometimes it's important to say again, who died for us. He's speaking to Christians who already have received the gospel in faith. So he's using, I think, a shorthand expression to point to something they already know, that Jesus died for sinners as an offering of grace. Grace means to receive something undeserved. But, but not only, sometimes I think we, we, we cheapen that grace with just leaving it that. Grace means to receive something undeserved, but the grace of God is not only undeserved, but unattainable. It's not like God did something for you that you could have done for yourself. God did something for you that you could never do for yourself. Christ died for you. Sinners, what we deserve is the rejection of God. What we deserve is the wrath of God. That's what makes verse 9 so amazing. Because verse 9 is the opposite of what we deserve. He he says in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but we deserve his wrath. Sinners deserve the wrath of God, but by grace Jesus came in the flesh to save us from our sins. By grace Jesus, who knew no sin, died for our sin that we might be saved. You deserve the wrath of God, but praise God for his amazing grace of sending his only begotten son as a baby who as a man would die for your sin that you might be saved. Resurrected by God, victorious over death, and reigns today as King of kings and Lord of lords who will return to receive the saints unto himself. Oh, friends. Salvation from sin, salvation through grace, and ultimately salvation to eternal life. So the issue that Paul is dealing with in 1 Thessalonians is the question that was being asked amongst the church because there was some confusion about the the nature of the resurrection and what happens to those who die before Jesus returns. So he writes there in verse 10, who died for us so that, this is key, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He was trying to encourage the church. 
Many in that day expected Jesus would return before any of the saints died in their lifetime. And there were, were some question about what would happen to those who died before Jesus. So they expected Jesus to return before any of them died. And as some of the saints were dying, the question is, what, do we, what about those who die before Jesus returns? That's what he means by those who are awake or asleep, those who are alive or dead in Christ. So Paul encourages the saints in verse 10 that those who are alive in Christ, uh, in Christ, at Christ's return, and those who have died in faith before he returns will both live with him. His point is that the salvation that Jesus brings is not temporary or restricted to the things of this world. The salvation in Jesus uh, rescues you from the wrath of God and gives you the hope of eternal life. There's two things there. Not only are you rescued from God's eternal wrath, but you are given God's eternal life. In verse 3, Paul pointed out that many in the world claim that everything is fine and there's nothing to worry about concerning the judgment of God. It's amazing how much things change and yet how much things stay the same. That's, that's the mantra of our current day today, isn't it? If you look at all of the excessive, wicked rebellion of our day, at the heart of that is the world saying peace and safety. You can do all of this and more. There's nothing to worry about from the judgment of God. But friends, this is a lie that is easily exposed by taking account of the world around you. The world is at war and wickedness and evil are rampant. I don't care who you are, how wealthy you may become, death is always lurking at the door. Tragedy and destruction can befall you at any moment, and no matter how much you claim there's nothing to worry about, the judgment of God is one heartbeat away. This is why Paul says, but you don't live according to the world's wisdom. You live according to the hope of God. But you, be sober. Live as children of the day. But Christians belong to the day and are not condemned to the destruction and the wrath of this world and have eternal life and living hope. That's his whole point. Your future, the promised future of the gospel is eternal life with Christ. Live presently with that great, glorious hope of salvation under eternal life. Then one other thing I want you to see, and that is perseverance in the present. And for this, I want to turn our attention back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the prophet says of the kingdom that will be established, it says, of the increase of his government, the Messiah's government, and of peace, <laughs> there will be no end. In other words, the kingdom of God is forever. It will not end. That's a pretty hopeful declaration, that the kingdom of Jesus has been established and will have no end. 
Isaiah also says of the kingdom of God that not only will it have no end, but it'll never stop increasing or growing. You may be familiar if you did basic high school history of the Roman Empire that lasted just shy of 500 years. That's a really long time, at least the way men count time. But it fell well short of, it's not the longest empire that ever lasted. You've got the Byzantine Empire that lasted 1,100 years. Uh, You've got some Chinese dynasties that lasted nearly 800 years. But all of them, regardless of how long they lasted, and of course then you get into historical debates about when do you count their beginning and when do you start uh, count their end, uh, it doesn't matter. All of them have a beginning and an end. Every nation and every empire that will ever be this side of heaven, at some point, in the, if, if the Lord tarries, there'll be a book written, The Rise and Fall Of. Because every nation has a beginning. In this side of heaven, every kingdom and nation and empire will have an end. In fact, when you read the histories of these mighty empires and nations, one of the common elements of them is as they grew, sometimes their size, the the amount of land that they conquered and just the, the, the bureaucracy required to maintain the government, oftentimes that was their demise. They grew so big they could not control themselves. And Isaiah says of the kingdom of God, Unlike the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God will have no end and it will never for eternity stop increasing. It only grows. It only increases. It never declines and it never fails. Isaiah prophesies an encouraging word that the kingdom of God is coming and will never end. Paul instructs the saints to encourage one another with the hope that the kingdom of God has come and will continue to increase. The rulers of today may seem powerful. The kingdoms of today may seem mighty. But the king of kings will rule them all. The governments and kingdoms of this world seem to hold all the might and authority and sovereignty. But they are fading and failing. And the kingdom of God is increasing and growing. Every king and kingdom will someday be no more except the king of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus. His kingdom will have no end. The kingdom of God will not end, and the promises of God will not fail. Embedded in Isaiah's prophetic word is a promise that the promises of God will never, ever, ever fail. The work and will of God is not dependent upon the help or the power of man. So in the end of verse 7, Paul makes, excuse me, Isaiah declares a, an important word about how these things will happen. So he says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Messiah will have no end. It lasts forever. It only increases. And notice what he says in the very last word there. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will 
do this. The work and will of God is not dependent on the power or help of man. The work and will of God are not dependent on the benevolence or permission of worldly governments. The work and will of God are established and accomplished only and singularly by the power of God. The work and will of God are fulfilled and continue to be fulfilled by the power of God. Isaiah 9, 7 declares, from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, now, tomorrow, and forever and ever and ever. What God promises, he accomplishes. What God foretells through the prophets, he fulfills. Nothing on this side of heaven is faithful and sure but the word of God. And friends, the word of God lasts forever. The promises of God endure forever. The will of God will be forever, and the kingdom of God will be forever. And that's why we say the hope of God is sure. The last word that Isaiah says is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word that is translated as zeal, it can mean to be, um, uh, it can mean jealousy, it can mean anger. It can mean rivalry, but, but here it means the passion. The, the passion, the intensity of the Lord. Isaiah uses it in the sense of passion or enthusiasm. In other words, God is passionate and enthusiastic for his will. He does not lose interest over time. He does not get distracted with other things. He is eternally focused and intentional on the accomplishment of his perfect will. The zeal, the passion of the Lord gives sureness in the hope of the gospel and the promises of God. He will accomplish his will for his name's sake and for his glory's sake. True. It is true and a faithful hope to trust in the promises of God. Live in the hope of the gospel. Assured that God will accomplish every promise and fulfill every word that he has spoken. This week, 25 years ago, Dana and I were standing on the platform of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Dalton, Georgia, entering into the covenant of marriage before the Lord. When I look at those pictures, we were just kids. We were two kids in love, excited to take on the world together, and we had no way of knowing those many years ago what joy and sorrows were before us, but we were confident that in the faithfulness and the power of God, to provide for us, and we were ready to take on the world together. As we were planning our wedding, our ceremony, we, we wanted to be sure that it was a worship service. We understood that the covenant of marriage was holy before the Lord. We understood that the covenant of marriage was one of the most beautiful, God-ordained, worldly, earthly testimonies to the gospel. And so we wanted to 
We wanted to, to make sure that our ceremony was holy, that it that honored the Lord, that it testified to the, the sacredness of the covenant in which we were entering into. It was Christmas time, and so that helped us in our planning a little bit. And so we decided that following our vows and the pronouncement of our union, the, the, the song that we would recess out of the church to would be the Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World. We tend to sing that during Christmas time. In fact, many people call it a Christmas carol, but it wasn't originally written as a Christmas carol. It was, it was written uh, as a meditation on Psalm 98, 2, that says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. It is a hymn about the establishment of the kingdom of God here on earth. The first stanza of this hymn celebrates the hope of salvation in the kingdom that comes through the Messiah Jesus. As Watts wrote, joy to the world, the Lord has come. The second stanza rejoices that Jesus as king reigns over all when he says joy to the world, the Savior reigns. The third and my favorite stanza Rejoices that the condemnation of sin that began with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was overcome through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When he writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Then the fourth stanza returns to the theme of the kingdom of God, rejoicing that the kingdom of Jesus is established forever in truth, in grace, as he writes, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus, who has brought salvation to his people from their sins has indeed brought joy to the world. His kingdom is established. His kingdom will know no end. It will never stop its increase. And today, brothers and sisters and friends, you have the opportunity to bow the knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords to confess him as Lord of your heart. Believe that God raised him from the dead, bringing about salvation from sin and death and receive the best gift ever given in all of eternity, the gift of salvation. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. 
Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.